Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. It's 10 in the morning, Wednesday the 30th of January 1946 and, flanked by a strong guard of detectives and uniformed police, 29-year-old William Leslie Fitzgerald is ushered into Cairns Court of Petty Sessions. Billy's charged with the grenade attack on the 14th of January that mortally wounded Holly Murphy and Kathleen Brown and left witness Bob Davis with serious injuries. Sub-Inspector Martin Elford of Cairns CIB, who has charge of the investigation, presents the Crown's case. Detective Sergeant Albert Hurd, who led inquiries, gives details of yesterday's apprehension and arrest. Bob Davis, survivor, has made a positive identification of his former mate Billy as being the double murderer. Billy's claimed alibi that he was in Poulos's club at the time of the blast hasn't been corroborated by anyone. The magistrate, Mr. Noyes, asks the accused if he's got anything to say. Billy responds, All I wish to say is, I never threw that bomb. The magistrate remands Billy to the Cairns Watch House until the 7th of February, when the committal hearing will commence. For the Crown's case to succeed, for Billy to be sent to trial and to be convicted, everything depends on crucial witness Bob Davis. He needs to be kept safe. He needs to be kept sweet. So Detective Senior Sergeant Frank Bischoff, head of Brisbane CIB's Homicide Squad, instructs Detective Sergeant Charles Donoghue to take Bob back with him to Innisfail. The officers to stash the witness in a hotel room and take care of his food and drink. Detective Sergeant Bischoff takes 10 quid from his own pocket and hands it to Detective Sergeant Donoghue. This money's not just to cover Bob's accommodation and sustenance. Detective Sergeant Bischoff instructs that Bob be given pocket money and that Detective Sergeant Donoghue should be liberal with these handouts. 
After all, Detective Sergeant Bischoff says, the last thing they need is for this witness to become antagonistic. What Detective Sergeant Bischoff doesn't do is seek permission from his superiors or follow established procedures for such expenditure. Over the next week, Bob will put his hand out to the tune of £6.10 shillings in pocket money. This is what the average working stiff earns for a 44-hour week. Of course, poor Joe Blow has to spend most of his money looking after his wife and kids and paying the rent or the mortgage. But Bob Davis can blow his money on whatever he wants. It's even better money than Bob used to get each week back when he was doing the hard work of pimping, extorting and threatening his wife. Given Billy Fitzgerald won't go to trial for three months, this is shaping up to be a nice little earn. All he has to do is keep his story straight for Detective Sergeant Bischoff. I'm Michael Adams and this is the third and final part of the Forgotten Australia episode, The Cairns Grenade Murders. The Imperial Hotel in Innisfale had at one time been the preferred accommodation for big game hunters. They liked that it was across the road from the Johnston River, which was rife with big fat crocodiles ripe for the shooting. The Imperial was where Detective Sergeant Donoghue lodged Bob Davis at 1.30pm on the day after he identified Billy. But the officer soon worried that undesirables who haunted the pub might get in his ear about testifying. So Detective Sergeant Donoghue moved him to the Queen's Hotel, which was pretty swanky, having been refurbished during the war and popular with tourists and travelling professionals. Bob was to stay there until early the morning of the 7th of February, when he would be brought to Cairns to testify in the committal hearing. One of the outcomes of Bob's identification of Billy was that it stopped the wider investigation in its tracks. On the day Billy was arrested, the CIB in Brisbane, still tracking down servicemen, had requested assistance from the chief of Melbourne CIB. The Telegraph read, quote, Please take up with RAAF authorities' view ascertaining definitely whether discharges mailed direct to any member. If so, to whom were such discharges mailed at towns north of Townsville between 7th and 14th January? Obtain actual measurement of discharge form, also the colour and quality of paper used. Urgent. But the next day, it wasn't urgent anymore. The same Brisbane CIB officer transmitted the following message to Melbourne's Chief of Police. Quote, Re-bombing outrage cans. Man has been arrested for this offence. No further action desired. Also behind the scenes, Cairns CIB Chief Inspector JJ Osborne was very far from pleased when he learned that Detective Sergeant Bischoff had instructed Detective Sergeant Donoghue to lavish cash on Bob Davis. All up that first week, hotel rooms, meals and pocket money had cost £12.10 and shillings. Detective Sergeant Bischoff and Detective Sergeant Donoghue had submitted claims for reimbursement. Inspector Osborne, in a memo to the Commissioner of Police, said he acknowledged that Bob Davis did need support. The man wouldn't be able to work until he was fully recovered and he wasn't eligible for sustenance payments. But even so, Inspector Osborne noted, Bob Davis was the sort of man who'd dodge employment if he could mooch off anyone with money, cops included. Inspector Osborne said Detective Sergeant Bischoff hadn't just made a mistake with exorbitant, unapproved expenses. The inspector predicted, quote, Davis to be troublesome when his pocket money is cut. Bob was brought down to Cairns to testify in the committal hearing on the 7th of February. He gave the same evidence against Billy he'd given during his interviews with police. 
With proceedings adjourned, Bob was returned to Innisfail, but now he learned that his gravy train had derailed. Bypassing Detective Sergeant Bischoff, Inspector Osborne had personally instructed Detective Sergeant Donahue to find Bob cheaper accommodation and to limit him to one pound per week of pocket money. Bob was not happy. But at least his cut price accommodation was better than the Cairns Watch House, which had been Billy's home since his arrest. On late Saturday afternoon, the 9th of February, Billy was in the lockup's wire-enclosed veranda, doing his best to cope with the heat. In the police station proper, Detective Constable Noakes was on duty when a man in uniform called in. His name was Thomas Lionel Mannix. He'd been drinking, was under the influence of alcohol, and he wanted to have a look at the accused. Why? Well, he told police, he'd served with a man named Fitzgerald, who he thought was from Townsville, so he wanted to see whether the alleged murderer was this same bloke. Detective Constable Noakes took Tom Mannix to see Constable Thomas Hogan, who was relieving Watch House Keeper that evening. Detective Constable Noakes left them to it. Constable Hogan took Tom to within 8 or 10 feet of the veranda. Detective Constable Noakes watched them and he reckoned they'd been closer than that, maybe 3 or 4 feet away. In any event, Tom told Constable Hogan, quote, This is not the man I know. Then Tom Mannix left. Detective Constable Noakes watched him walk out onto the Esplanade and he didn't see him again that day. Fifteen minutes later, Billy called out to Constable Hogan. He said, quote, That man that was here a little while ago was the man who I spoke to in front of the Pulos's club on the night of the bombing. He told me that night that he'd been robbed of 50 bob and a bottle of plonk. He told me that a man wearing glasses, khaki shorts and a singlet had robbed him. That night he told me that he had lost his pipe and he was smoking one when he was here. He had the same tobacco pouch with him that he had on that night. He is the man that I mentioned in my statement that I gave to the police. Bob Davis wore glasses. He told the police he'd been wearing khaki shorts and a singlet the night of the grenade attack. But of course, Billy would have known this if he'd been the one to throw the grenade. The next morning, Billy called Detective Constable Noakes over to the veranda. He said... You remember that soldier that was here yesterday? He told me that it was him that threw the bomb. Detective Constable Noakes asked, When did he say that? Billy replied, Yesterday afternoon. Billy reckoned that Tom Mannix had slipped back and made this confession after the first visit where he'd been escorted by Constable Hogan. Detective Constable Noakes asked, What else did he say? Billy replied, He said that it should have been him that ought to be in here and not me. From a later article, it also seemed that Billy claimed Tom Mannix had taunted him by singing or whistling the song, Somebody Else Is Taking My Place. When Billy had originally told his story on the 25th of January, he described the supposed robbery victim he'd encountered as being, quote, about 40 years of age, 5 foot 9 or 5 foot 10 in height, he had wide shoulders and was well built. He was slightly wrinkled about the mouth and appeared to have a fresh complexion. That was all pretty vague. I had Thomas Lionel Mannix's military records digitised at the National Archives of Australia. He was born in 1903 and was 42 years old on the night of the attack. So he was close in age to the man described by Billy. From November 1944 until just before last Christmas, he'd served in New Britain. Then he'd been returned to Brisbane and discharged on the 8th of January 1946, so six days before the grenade attack. 
Tom Mannix had taken the train to Cairns and arrived on the 12th of January. From his photo in his military file, Tom appeared to have been solidly built. He had hazel eyes, fair hair and a fair complexion. His military record said that he stood 5 foot 9. But his portrait and profile photos, taken when he enlisted against a height chart, showed that Tom just scraped in at 5 foot 7, and even that was thanks to a quiff. Billiard also initially said the man he'd encountered had a tattoo on his left arm above the elbow, a design of a ship with a blue ring around it. There's no record of such a tattoo in Tom's discharge papers. Following Billy's claims about Tom Mannix, a report was made to Sub-Inspector Elford on Sunday morning, and he, Detective Constable Noakes and Constable Hogan made immediate inquiries. They found Tom at his home in Buchan Street in Cairns. Tom said yes, he'd gone to the police station yesterday afternoon and at the watch house satisfied himself it wasn't the Fitzgerald he knew. Tom said his entire visit had only taken two or three minutes. He denied having ever met Bill before, much less that he'd encountered him on the street the night of the grenade attack. Tom also denied that he'd returned to the watch house and made any sort of confession. Tom explained to the police that he'd been discharged on the 8th of January, had arrived in Cairns on the 12th, and that he'd been shopping in Cairns on the 14th, the day of the grenade attack, and had gone home by about 7.30pm. So, three hours before the grenade attack. Tom said he hadn't left the house again. This was corroborated by his wife Minnie and by neighbours who reckoned they'd seen Tom at his place between 7.30 and 11 that night. Just after 2 o'clock on the Sunday afternoon, Detective Sergeant Hurd and Detective Constable Noakes brought Tom into the station. There, he repeated his story. Detective Sergeant Hurd brought Billy in to see Tom. Billy repeated his story in Tom's presence. To the allegation that he'd made a confession at the watch house, Tom said, quote, I was over there a few seconds and a constable was standing beside me all the time. Billy replied, Yes, but you came back a second time when no one was here. Tom denied he'd made a second visit. Detective Sergeant Hurd got Billy to confirm the man he'd seen the night of the grenade attack had a ship in a circle tattoo on his left upper arm. Then he asked Tom Mannix to remove his shirt. The man had no upper body ink at all. Tom had planned to leave Cairns on the 14th of February with his wife and children to spend two months visiting her people in Victoria. So he gave evidence in the reconvened committal hearing in the Court of Petty Sessions on the 13th. Tom made a sworn statement saying he'd been at home at the time of the crime, denied any involvement in the bombing and said he'd made no confession to Billy. Tom was allowed to leave the state on the understanding he'd return as a trial witness if necessary. Up in Innisvale, Bob was pissed at Detective Sergeant Bischoff. He said the copper had made promises to him that weren't now being fulfilled. A memo dated the 18th of January from Inspector Osborne to the Police Commissioner contained something quite remarkable. It related how at 8.30 in the morning, three days earlier, Inspector Gannon of Innisfail had phoned him to say Bob had asked to see Detective Sergeant Martin of Townsville because he had to tell him something further to what he'd said in his interviews and in court. Inspector Osborne got Detective Sergeant Martin to Cairns by plane. Then he sent him, Sub-Inspector Elford and Detective Sergeant Hurd to see Bob at Innisfail. Quote, 
On the morning of the 16th, Sub-Inspector Elford and Detective Senior Sergeant Martin informed me that Davis was becoming very restless at Innisfail, and when he was first interviewed, he was inclined to suggest that it was a soldier named Thomas Lionel Mannix who was assaulted early on the night of the 14th and robbed of £2.10 shillings and a bottle of wine in Grafton Street cans. Davis did not know Mannix. He had not met him before. How did Bob know this? Was it because he was the one who'd robbed Tom? Or was he just crafting a tale based on what Billy had said to leverage the cops for more money? What he surely knew was that if he said anything like this in court, Billy had a very good chance of being acquitted by a jury. Yet, as we'll hear, Bob would also claim to have said something during this interview that wouldn't just completely destroy the Crown's case, but would bring the Queensland Police Force into disrepute. That Bob was concerned with cash was confirmed in a reimbursement memo that Detective Sergeant Martin later submitted. He said immediately upon arriving at Innisfail Police Station to interview Bob, quote, I gathered from him that one of his grievances was finance, and I advanced him the sum of one pound there and then. Inspector Osborne was worried, writing, quote, It would appear that Davis is now regretting that he identified Fitzgerald as the offender in the bomb case, although he intimated to Sub-Inspector Elford and Detective Sergeant Martin that Fitzgerald was the definite culprit and that the evidence he had given in the Petty Sessions Court was correct. Yet, Inspector Osborne continued, quote, I considered it very probable that he would make statements in public which, although incorrect, may have a damaging effect on police prestige, particularly if some unscrupulous newspaper reporter was to contact Davis and endeavour to make capital out of his sour mood and statements. What exactly was he afraid Bob would say? Inspector Osborne wasn't taking any chances. He ordered Detective Sergeant Martin to get Bob down to Brisbane. The officer advanced the witness yet another pound, and they flew to Townsville and then on to Brisbane. Bob was admitted to the General Hospital, quote, to clear up his wounds. While his injuries may have been a concern, what was abundantly clear was that Inspector Osborne wanted this man safely tucked away. It didn't appear that the press was wise to this move. Down in Brisbane, Detective Sergeant Bischoff's regular partner, Detective Sergeant Cronow, was told to keep an eye on Bob and make sure he was all right. Detective Sergeant Cronow would later report, quote, I was instructed to keep in close touch with Davis and to look after him so that he would be available to give evidence at the circuit court in Cairns when required. Davis was practically destitute when brought to Brisbane. Whilst an inmate of the Brisbane General Hospital, I supplied Davis with tobacco and cigarettes to the value of 11 shillings. Bob Davis was discharged to the Prince of Wales boarding house in Grey Street, South Brisbane on the 12th of March. Police were paying the rent. The next day, Detective Sergeant Cronow gave Bob another 10 shillings and then two days later handed over another pound. Then, on the 20th of March, he gave him a further 10 shillings. So, all up, in a week, Detective Sergeant Cronell had handed over £2, which was twice what Inspector Osborne had previously approved as pocket money at Innisfail. But Detective Sergeant Cronell was now on his own turf, and he knew what he had to do to keep Bob happy and under wraps. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. 
Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Back in Cairns during the past month, Billy's committal hearing had resumed. On the 19th of February, the Court of Petty Sessions had been packed as Detective Sergeant Hurd and other police testified about the crime scene, the investigation and what Bob and Billy had said separately and then when confronted with each other. Other witnesses included the ambulance officers and doctors. Mick and Peter Poulos and various others who'd been in the club said they'd not seen the accused in the premises at the time of the bombing, yet he'd been there earlier in the evening. Yet, under cross-examination from Billy's counsel, several of these people admitted it had been dark, that they'd been focused on their card games, and it was possible they'd merely not seen Billy. Mrs Brackenridge gave her evidence that Billy had appeared on the Heatherview veranda shortly after the explosion and had made that strange claim he hadn't heard the noise, although he'd been in the club downstairs. None of this looked good for Billy. Yet there were contradictions that a good defence could exploit at trial. In his police interview, before he was charged, Detective Sergeant Hurd had asked Billy if he could remember anything that had been said in the club when the men heard the explosion. Billy had replied yes. Percy Hill had said, what is that? Billy had replied, it sounded like a cracker. Percy had then said, that's no bleeping cracker. During the committal, Sub-Inspector Elford had asked Percy, Did defendant say to you at the time of the explosion, it sounds like a cracker, and in reply, you said, that's no bleepin' cracker? Percy testified, I said those words. Who to? Another player at the table. Billy's solicitor replied, So when you gave that answer, you do not know who asked the question? Percy responded, I definitely do not know who asked it. If Percy couldn't identify a man he'd been talking with, how could he be sure it wasn't Billy? And if Billy hadn't been there, how did he know this had been said? What was also contradictory, at least with the benefit of our access to the police murder file, was that Sub-Inspector Elford had initially reported he and other officers had doubted Bob's description of the attacker because the light in Grafton Street hadn't been good enough for the witness to see clearly. Yet, in court, Detective Sergeant Hurd testified that Bob's identification of Billy was reliable because, quote, there was nothing to obstruct the view of persons sitting under the awning of the area in which the bomb was allegedly thrown. A medium light would have been shining on the thrower, making recognition quite easy. Also going in favour of Billy in court would be Bob's character. The defence would surely bring up his string of sleazy convictions, accuse him of previously lying under oath, and very likely questioned him about the money he'd received from police. Even in his statements to police, there had been contradictions. For instance, he'd said that on the 9th of the 9th of January, he'd gone to Grafton Street and seen Billy and Holly apparently drinking happily. Yet he'd also claimed that it had been on this night that they'd had a terrific argument over the £12 Billy had supposedly stolen from a John, and that Billy had threatened both her and Bob. It had remained to be seen how well Bob would stand up to cross-examination. The defence would also cast doubt on Tom Mannix's conduct. 
Had he really just been drunk and wondering if the accused double murderer was the same Fitzgerald he'd known in the army? Something Inspector Osborne had written of Tom's supposed second visit to the watch house contained the exact thread that a defence would use. Quote, Unless Constable Hogan kept Fitzgerald under constant supervision, which the constable claims he did, it would be possible for Mannix to speak to Fitzgerald owing to the open situation of the grilled-in watch house veranda. Would Constable Hogan be able to swear under oath that he hadn't taken his eyes off Billy for a few minutes? While the case against the accused was strong, particularly with Bob Davis's identification, a skillful defence might poke enough holes in the Crown's story to cause a jury to have reasonable doubt. Given Billy would be facing life behind bars, they'd need to be sure he was guilty. Billy Fitzgerald was committed to stand trial in the circuit court on the 29th of April 1946. In response to each of the three charges, he told the committal hearing, quote, I never done it, your worship. I plead not guilty and reserve my defence. All witnesses would be bound over to reappear at the trial, including Bob Davis, whose bond was £40. Behind the scenes over the next few weeks, available police correspondence was concerned with ensuring a subpoena was issued to compel Tom Mannix to return from Victoria and testify. It'd take him a week to travel from Melbourne by train, and his considerable expenses would be paid by the Crown Prosecutor's Office. Tom's evidence would be vital. It'd show Billy's claim to have seen a tattooed man on the street was very hard to credit, given he'd also said that this man was the untattooed Tom Mannix. The police, during this lull, so far as the file allows, were also caught up in Detective Sergeant Bischoff and Detective Sergeant Donahue's reimbursement claims for those initial expenses that had seemed not only exorbitant, but the trigger for Bob Davis's discontent. Writing on the 18th of April, in support of his claim for £10, Detective Sergeant Bischoff set out how it had been necessary to advance Bob that money and how he'd actually instructed Detective Sergeant Donahue that it be spent judiciously. In any event, he was now, nearly three months later, submitting the necessary voucher and receipt signed by Bob. When it had been signed wasn't clear. A lot of expenses relating to Bob hadn't been duly documented. The police commissioner would just have to trust and accept that these monies had been handed over. Defending his actions, Detective Sergeant Bischoff wrote, I might add that the witness was able to and did in fact give very important evidence at the police court hearings of the above-mentioned charges. That was true, but everything now hinged on what Bob would say at the trial. On the 26th of April, with that trial just three days away, Inspector Osborne sent a telegram to Brisbane CIB. Quote, Please wire when Robert William Joseph Davis witness murder trial likely arrive cans. About two dozen witnesses were due to appear at the trial, including Tom Mannix, who was already en route from Victoria. But of course, Bob was going to be the star. Yet Detective Sergeant Cronow, his babysitter, didn't bother responding to Inspector Osborne's telegram. Two days later, at midday, one day before the trial, the inspector left a follow-up message. Detective Sergeant Cronow did respond to that a couple of hours later to say that Bob, quote, disappeared from a residential at South Brisbane where he was staying four weeks ago today. He left in a motor car in company with another man. The number of the motor car and name of the man is unknown. Four weeks ago today. 
he'd clarify that it had been the 31st of March that Bob was last seen. Detective Sergeant Cronow wrote to his Brisbane CIB boss, Inspector Thomas Harold, saying he'd been unable to find any trace of Bob. Remarkably, in this memo, Detective Sergeant Cronow also claimed that almost a week earlier, he'd raised concerns about the witness with the boss of the Cairns CIB. Quote, when speaking to Inspector Osborne over the telephone on the 22nd regarding another matter, I then advised him that Davis had disappeared and that most likely he would not appear at the Cannes Circuit Court when required. Detective Sergeant Cronow, by his own reporting, had been ordered to ensure Bob was safe and secure and available to give evidence. Yet it had been three weeks since the man's disappearance before he'd thought to mention it and only then, in passing, to Inspector Osborne at Cairns. Inspector Osborne confirmed the gist of this, writing, quote, When speaking by telephone to Detective Sergeant First Class Cronow, Brisbane, on another matter, on the 22nd, he informed me that Davis had been missing from his boarding house for about two weeks, but it was hoped he would be located. Inspector Osborne hadn't followed up until the 26th, then, receiving no reply, inquired again two days later, quote, and was later advised he'd been missing for four weeks. The only witness to a double murder had not only been allowed to disappear, but it appeared no one had bothered reporting this or looking for him for a month. Was this an incredible cascade of incompetence? Or was it something more sinister? Where was Bob Davis? The newspapers were ignorant about his disappearance until the 29th of April when the star witness didn't appear in Cairns Court. Billy Fitzgerald's trial for double murder was unable to proceed. What wasn't in the papers was that Billy's solicitor had received a bombshell letter. It was supposedly from Bob and it had arrived in his P.O. box at 1.55pm on the 29th of April. Yet it was dated the 15th of March which was just after Bob had gotten out of the hospital and two weeks before his disappearance. Only a typewritten transcript survives in the murder file. Bob had allegedly written, quote, Sir, I am writing you read the bomb case in Cairns on the 14 1st 46. The statement and evidence I made and gave was all right up to the point of identity. I cannot say for sure that Bill Fitzgerald threw it, I got the police at Innisfail to get Mr. Alfred from Cairns and Detective Sergeant Martin from Townsville to see me last month at Innisfail. I told them I was not sure of Billy being the man, but they convinced me I was wrong. But I still say he is not the man for sure who threw the bomb. I was pretty drunk and had no glasses on that night. R.W.J. Davis. P.S. Keep this secret until the trial. The transcript in the murder file notes the original had come in an envelope stamped in the Brisbane suburb of West End, but the date was indecipherable. If Bob had actually written it on the 15th and wanted it kept secret until the trial, why hadn't he posted it then? Why had it turned up some four weeks after he'd gone missing? What was the point of asking the solicitor to keep this secret until the trial when the letter didn't actually arrive until after the trial had been opened and adjourned due to Bob's non-appearance? Billy's solicitor said he intended to send this letter to the public defender's office. This was the exact sort of scandal the Queensland police had built itself to be immune to. 
there would never be the slightest hint of this letter in the newspapers. Sub-Inspector Elford, reporting on the letter's claims, said that he and Detective Sergeant Martin had seen Bob at Innisfail on the 15th. Yes, the witness had been in a sour mood. Yes, he'd complained about Detective Sergeant Bischoff's unfulfilled promises. And yes, he'd been worried about being considered a snitch. But no, he had never expressed any doubt about the identification and had reaffirmed his certainty that the grenade thrower had been Billy. Yet, while Inspector Osborne was fretting about what Bob might say to the press, Bob had been flown away to Brisbane Hospital to stop him talking. Upon Bob's non-appearance in court, the Crown Prosecutor applied for a warrant to be issued for his arrest. The judge said he was unable to do this because there was no proof that Bob was willfully abstaining from attending. This was a curious ruling. It opened the door to the idea that Bob might have been prevented from testifying. The judge, who didn't seem to know about the recantation letter, said he'd subpoena Bob Davis. This had another outcome. If he had issued a warrant, Bob's name, age, description, history and so on would have been circulated nationwide, appearing in each state's police gazette. A constable arresting a vagrant in Brisbane or the back of beyond might match him to the description. But a subpoena didn't carry this clout. In the absence of the crucial Crown witness, the judge adjourned the case until the 22nd of July 1946. In the meantime, accused double murderer Billy Fitzgerald was granted bail of £500 on the condition that he reported daily to the Cairns cops. If the case against Billy was to proceed, Bob had to be found. Detective Sergeant Cronow supplied a report on the last supposedly positive sighting of Bob on the last day of March, when he'd gotten into an unidentified car with an unknown man and driven off the face of the earth. The officer also claimed that Bob had always maintained Billy was the bomber and that he'd only ever given true evidence. Yet there was also this in Detective Sergeant Cronow's report, quote, Although Davis stated that he would attend the circuit court at Cairns and give the evidence, I was of the opinion that he would disappear before the case came to hearing. And I informed him so in a discreet manner, but he maintained that he would be at the circuit court in Cairns when required. So, Detective Sergeant Cronow, who'd been Bob's watcher and who'd supplied him with small sums of money from the 16th of February until at least the 20th of March, had harboured serious concerns this crucial witness would do a runner. And instead of reporting his worries to his superiors and seeking their guidance on how to prevent such an outcome, Detective Sergeant Cronow had instead had a quiet, off-the-record word to the potential fugitive. Detective Sergeant Cronow would report on the 8th of May, quote, Since Davis disappeared, I have made search and discreet inquiries from all likely sources, but I have failed to locate him or obtain any information that would assist in tracing him. He did speak of wanting to go to Darwin to work as a waterside worker. Meanwhile, Detective Bischoff, with his conduct under review, decided the best defence was a good offence. He requested a memo he wrote to the police commissioner be placed before the Solicitor General and the Attorney General. He had nothing to hide. In his memo, there was this deflection of blame. Quote, 
both Sub-Inspector Elford and Detective Senior Sergeant Martin followed closely all investigations carried out in connection with these crimes, whilst I was engaged thereon at Cairns, and they were fully aware of the character of Davis and of the difficulties besetting the investigators in eliciting any information from Davis. That was true. Bob Davis was a mercenary scumbag with the morals of an alley cat. Was it good policing then to rely on such a man? Detective Bischoff went on, reiterating what he'd spent and why. Remember, he'd previously justified the same by saying how important Bob's information had been. Detective Sergeant Bischoff now claimed Bob was, quote, sour before my arrival, but he said the man had been cooperative thereafter, particularly because Detective Sergeant Bischoff was giving him everything he wanted. The only thing he hadn't been able to grant was the restoration of his waterside workers' ticket, which Bob had lost through absenteeism. But, Detective Sergeant Bischoff reported, quote, Needless to say, I made no promises beforehand which might be likely to lead to his concocting false information. Nevertheless, Detective Sergeant Bischoff also wrote, quote, In my opinion, Davis, if the matters had gone to trial, would have proved to be an unimpressive witness. This was an important opinion from the state's leading murder expert from the man who'd gotten the crucial information from the key witness, from the man who'd splashed cash around to keep him sweet and keep his story straight. Yet, Detective Sergeant Bischoff, who'd written numerous memos about getting reimbursed, hadn't seen fit to commit to writing or make it known via telegram or telephone message that he believed the Crown's case, which he'd helped to build, was a house of cards. Detective Sergeant Bischoff actually had the audacity to write, quote, it is regrettable that the cases could not have been brought to a more successful conclusion, but nothing that I or any other police officer did or was reasonably able to do militated against a better result. Police closed ranks around their star detective. Sending Detective Sergeant Bischoff's self-justifying memo to the Solicitor General, the Police Commissioner, C.J. Carroll, added a handwritten note, quote, there is really no occasion to send this report to you, but in view of Detective Senior Sergeant Bischoff's wishes, the report is forwarded. No officer could have done more than Bischoff did in this case. The witness, however, is a person who apparently could not face up to trial. His remarks are not worth any consideration. The Solicitor General agreed. On the 28th of May, all charges against Billy Fitzgerald were dropped. As far as I've been able to ascertain, he wasn't again in trouble with the law. Put it this way, under that name, he didn't make the available Australian newspapers again for a criminal offence. Given his prior lack of record, this was consistent. And Bob Davis? He wasn't found. As in, at all. As we've heard, Bob had been a regular in the courts in the 1930s. His name had made the papers for the crimes he'd committed and the convictions against him. Early in the investigation into the Cairns murders, he'd told Detective Sergeant Hurd that he was afraid of testifying because he'd likely end up in jail again. He'd lost his wharf ticket through absenteeism. He was spending his days drinking and gambling and hanging around whorehouses. Bob really didn't appear to have changed his ways. So, on the 31st of March 1946, when he got into that car in Brisbane, he was a middle-aged loser without prospects who'd been living off handouts from the cops for the past couple of months. Maybe Bob had gotten into a car that was driven by a mate who was whisking him away to a new life under a new name. 
but given Bob's form, it seemed highly likely he'd run afoul of the law again. Maybe he would get away with using an alias. Or maybe he did go straight, knowing if he was sent back to Queensland, the £40 bond for non-appearance would be the least of his troubles. There are, of course, other possibilities. Billy Fitzgerald clearly had a lot to lose if Bob testified. If he was convicted, Billy would spend life behind bars. According to police, Billy did have a few criminal associates. Did he have enough clout to organise a hit on Bob down in Brisbane? It's possible, but he would have had to know where he'd been stashed for a starting point. The Queensland police also stood to lose if Bob took the stand and blabbed about having told the police Tom Mannix had been there that night and or that he couldn't really identify Bill as the bomber. The case wouldn't just collapse. Detective Sergeant Bischoff and others might be accused of pressuring and perhaps even paying a witness to continue perjuring himself. Of course, on the 31st of March 1946, Bob's whereabouts in Brisbane weren't a mystery to Queensland police. They were paying for his accommodation, and Detective Sergeant Cronow was regularly supplying him with walking around money. Did Bob Davis make one demand or threat too many? Maybe the simplest solution was handing a bit more cash to the man and telling him to clear out and to never come back. Yet, how could anyone be sure that Bob wouldn't turn up again? The bad penny always with his hand out for a few pounds and threatening to flap his trap. Maybe Bob's letter to Billy's solicitor was his crude version of an insurance policy. Or maybe it was written after he was gone by someone else to explain his disappearance and indicate he was still alive and out there somewhere. There are only maybes and there is only mystery. The murder file shows desultory queries from Cannes CIB to Brisbane CIB about Bob's whereabouts. In August, Detective Sergeant Cronow assured his northern colleagues that if the man was in Brisbane, he would have heard about it. So now, he was sure that Bob was in the Northern Territory. Quote, Davis did make some mention at one time of going to Darwin. I am satisfied that he has left this state, and there is a possibility that he did go to Darwin. Two years later, on the 21st of December 1948, a Detective Sergeant N.W. Bauer reported to the Commissioner for the information of the Solicitor General that, quote, Davis is well known to me, and also to a good number of men at this office. I cannot obtain any information to show that Davis has been seen about Brisbane recently, and inquiries made from persons to whom he is known have proved negative. Nearly a year later, Detective Sergeant Bauer reported again, this time saying he'd received information that Bob had been working as a drinks waiter at a hotel at Tambourine Mountain. He'd not been able to confirm this and requested his memo be copied to the Canungra police so they could check it out. Bob Davis wasn't found. As for other characters we heard about, Carol Davis and her Canadian pimp, Leo McLeod, had left Cairns for Townsville soon after the grenade murders. They returned in March 1946 and he was jailed for three months for living off her. Two years later, down in Brisbane, Leo got another three months for the same offence. Truce headline read, A Vulture is Caged. This vulture would soon fly off to Canada and live a life of crime over the next two decades. His most serious conviction for a series of armed robberies got him six years. 
but this case was also newsworthy because Leo and his gang had been polite bandits who didn't hurt anyone. Was Leo the type to throw a grenade? Maybe, but the Cairns police had seemed to clear him early on. Another character who intrigued was Thomas Lionel Mannix. By his own admission, he'd been drunk when he'd wanted to see Billy. The story about having known a man by the same name while he was in the army was pretty thin. Military records at the National Archives of Australia show that dozens of William Fitzgeralds served in World War II. As Inspector Osborne's memo made clear, it was possible that Tom had returned to the lockup without Constable Hogan seeing him. But why would he? Because he felt guilty? Because he wanted to taunt Billy? Either is possible. Similarly difficult to understand, though, is how Billy would think that making up a story about Tom would help him. Why would he think that he could randomly point the finger at a man who'd been standing beside Constable Hogan? It would have had to be a miracle for that man not to have an alibi. Maybe Billy was desperate and took the chance, a real Hail Mary pass, and forgot what he'd said about the man he'd supposedly seen having that ship tattoo. Maybe, in his fear, Billy had genuinely misremembered and misidentified Tom. But it did make me wonder about Tom Mannix. He died in 1954 after a tree fell on him. Contacting a family member, I was told that Tom had not been mourned. His people, figuratively at least, had danced on his grave. This descendant had no idea about the Cairns grenade murders. What he did know was that Tom had been a violent sexual predator within his own family. Not that this constitutes proof that he was a murderer, but it did belie the propriety Tom claimed for himself in his sworn statements. Maybe he had been robbed by Bob earlier that day in the Red Light District. Maybe he had returned that night to exact revenge with a grenade he'd souvenired from the army. Maybe he then cowed his wife into alibying him and got lucky when his neighbours said they'd seen him at home. It's a lot of maybes, and it doesn't explain why Billy said Tom had a tattoo, which did seem to clear him. There was another possibility that didn't seem to have been considered by the police, at least in the murder file. While the army ordnance expert who inspected the scene said the grenade thrower had enough time to get clear of the blast, this didn't seem to be the initial consensus among detectives who believed the weapon used had been one of the short fuse mills bombs. On the 18th of January, the Courier Mail had contained a thought-provoking observation in one of its articles. Quote, Reconstructing the crime, police cannot understand how the man who threw the grenade escaped from injury in the four seconds that elapsed before the grenade exploded. Possibility that he might have been injured and escaped into the city has not been overlooked by police. Maybe the man who threw the grenade, or for some reason accidentally pulled the pin, didn't escape injury. Maybe he'd been right there in the hospital bed, weighing how he could save himself from life in prison. Were Bob's injuries so serious that police didn't for a second think that they might have been self-inflicted? As we've heard, Bob was a bastard who'd been charged with pimping out and threatening his own wife. Who knew how many times he'd actually made good on such threats? What if Bob had been menacing Holly and Kathleen, or even just mucking around in a drunken haze when he'd pulled the pin, either accidentally or as a threat? Would these women have followed the underworld code by not telling the cops what Bob had done? Would they even have known, given they were drunk and in shock and terribly injured? 
there's nothing in the murder file to suggest police ever suspected Bob. Maybe because Constable Mason had seen that man running along Lake Street soon after the blast. Yet, what if the running man wasn't the culprit? What if he was just the client of a prostitute who, scared by the explosion, wanted to clear out before the cops started raiding joints and asking questions? Bob's identification of Billy as the killer coincided with the arrival of Detective Senior Sergeant Frank Bischoff and the inducements he offered. Could Bob, who initially had only been wanting to save his own neck, have at this point realised he might do all right out of stringing the cops along? If he named Billy, who the cops already suspected and recanted further down the track, then no harm would be done to an innocent man. Once Bob was on his feet, with a few Bob socked away, he might be able to do his disappearing act and put the whole unfortunate grenade business behind him. This, of course, is pure speculation. But amid all the uncertainty, what seems clear to me is that the conduct of Detective Sergeant Bischoff and his cronies obstructed any chance of solving the Cairns grenade murders. Had the police not focused solely on dodgy Bob stories, they might, might, have uncovered other evidence that would have convicted the murderer of Holly Murphy and Kathleen Brown. Instead, Detective Sergeant Bischoff and co. seemed more interested in securing an easy conviction and, when that predictably fell to pieces, in deflecting blame and claiming expenses. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. I'll be back with a new episode very soon. In the meantime, as a Patreon supporter or Apple subscriber, you can get immediate access to full-length exclusive bonus episodes. Links are in your show notes. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.